0: this is the we the people our american story podcast my name is tina McCafferty. join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans combat survivors first responders and american patriots in their own words if you are pro-freedom and pro-america you are in the right place We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. There is no better feeling than knowing your family always has access to clean, safe drinking water. The CyberTech Ring A10 Atmospheric Water Generator is the answer to your peace of mind. The A10 generates clean, fresh drinking water out of humidity, creating up to 10 liters of drinking water each day. The A10 is environmentally friendly with a small footprint a solar option for remote location, and eliminates bottled water. 36-month financing is available around $70 a month. Visit mywatersource.net. Use code PATRIOT, which in turn will help the We the People, Our American Story podcast reach more patriots. Cheers to clean drinking water and the Cybertech Ring A10 Atmospheric Water Generator. My dearest Rebecca, hoping by now that the shock of finding out all the details of your birth is forgotten. For that was not reason enough of having to give something up as beautiful as you were. Nothing as precious as a baby. Mostly when you carry one nine months and you go through the birth feeling no one loves you. But you were so perfect and pretty. All these years I had nothing of you. No picture. Even saying that you were part of me. Just the memory of carrying a baby that I hoped one day would try to find her real mother as I wanted to know my baby. I always loved you in my heart. You were always with me in my thoughts, mostly in July. It seems like a lifetime, I know. When I was sick two years ago, I thought I would never get to know my little girl. Would you please see if you could give me a copy of the letter you sent to the Oakland County judge? It made me cry. Also, I would like copies of your poems. These are things I would like to read. It's been a long three weeks, looking forward to our meeting. I don't know how to express my inner feelings. It's so great, big, beautiful. It's always been my dream. I am so happy. I am crying. A love that ate at me for 19 years, my daughter at last, with love, your mom. Joanne, is that correct, Joanne? Yes. And with that, my guest today is Rebecca Kiesling. She has a remarkable story on so many different fronts that I cannot wait to hear what she has to share with us. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. You are going to share with us today your amazing story and what this letter is. How did you come into this world?
1: Well, I learned when I was 18, how I was conceived and at 19, when I met my birth mother, I learned the horrible details and I was conceived when she was abducted at knife point by a serial rapist. And, um, that was very difficult for me, of course, to learn such a thing at 18 and 19 years old. Growing up, you knew you were adopted. Yes. Um, at some point, I understood the concept because I remember in elementary school when I was so young, early elementary, when they were teaching about pregnancy and and childbirth, like sort of the basics. I, I recall thinking, well, I don't really need to pay attention because this doesn't apply to me because I was adopted. And I really thought I was adopted instead of being born. I used to cry to my parents, you know, why didn't you adopt me first? Because I had a brother who was a year and a half older than me. He used to beat me up all the time. And (laughs) I, I thought if I'd been adopted first, I'd be older than him. You know, I thought it was like the stork, like my parents called up God and placed an order for me.
0: You were both adopted then.
1: Yes, yes. And so I really, really did not understand the concept of a birth mother until, you know, I I think at least by like second and third grade, I had that understanding. And did you have a happy childhood? Um, You know, yes and no. My family was really abusive. Uh, You know, when things were good, they were really good. There's a lot of things they did right, like um, health, nutrition, physical fitness, sports, Uh, academics, you know, I always had a great education. I excelled in sports and academics. Um, you know, we did family games, family walks, things like that. May I ask what kind of abuse was it? Physical mental? Yeah, both. Yeah. Yeah. My mom was bipolar undiagnosed unmedicated. My dad was really quite a narcissist. Um, there was, you know, magazines, inappropriate magazines in the home. Um, There were, there were, you know, I I can look at things that they did right. And I can look at things that were, you know, really bad.
0: So during those times growing up, when times were bad, did you ever reflect on, oh, I wish I was with my birth mother? Why did she give me up? Maybe that life would have been better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw the movie. Um, Annie little orphan Annie I also thought why couldn't I have been adopted by daddy Warbucks you know <laughs> <laughs> yes
0: can't we all be adopted by daddy Warbucks
1: yeah and and she got to have a dog you know and I didn't so <laughs> um yeah but I I began to romanticize about my birth family and wonder what happened to them and of course in in Annie she learns that her parents had died like in a fire or something like that but um I knew it had been the Vietnam war. I thought, well, maybe she, he went off to war and died or she was alone, you know, or maybe I was a love child because I was born three weeks before um, Woodstock. So I thought maybe she was a hippie. Like, I didn't know, although my parents told me that she was going through a divorce and that she had, that I had an older brother and sister. So but, I mean, that was kind of hard to wrap my mind around. It was easier to think it was something a little different. I mean, I was shocked to learn that she was 30, 31 when I was born.
0: That is older. Okay, yeah. that's shocking for yeah. me. I just assumed she'd probably be a teenage a teenage mom. No. And so, as far as the abuse went, did that have an effect on you mentally it had to have, right?
1: Uh, yeah, of course. And also, they were Jewish, and I didn't look Jewish. Uh, they sent me to five years of Hebrew school, three days a week. I was bat mitzvahed, but they didn't do any of that in the household. My the only religious person in the family was my grandfather, who was extremely abusive to my grandmother. But my grandmother, she was an atheist jew like they identified as jews like you know jews um don't eat pork right um my my dad didn't eat pork even though like you know he lived as an atheist he called himself agnostic but he lived as an atheist my grandmother said she was atheist but um she was actually very pro-life and when my grandfather died I was 13 a year later she began to tell the story that when she was pregnant with my aunt who's the younger of her two children that my grandfather told her to go get an abortion and she cried saying I never loved him again after that and I do my grandfather was extremely abusive to my grandmother like she was coming over to the house all the time because grandpa was on the war path. They, they were, they spoke Yiddish. So they used this term that grandpa had the shoss, which basically meant that he was, um, you know, out of control and, and, you know, we'd hear her calling screaming and she'd have to come stay with us for a little bit. And I remember him lecturing me that you don't tell anybody what's going on in the household, you know, in the family, it's a secret. And he said, my grand, my father, you know, gave me a bloody nose and I thanked him for it. He's like, "Ah, I thanked him for it. And I just thought, oh, this is so wrong.
0: Your grandma then was your introduction really to the pro-life movement in a way.
1: Yes. And my, my aunt's daughter, when I was 12, she was 16. I remember she had an abortion and the family talking about it, that this was not a good thing. And, you know, I just thought I I wouldn't have one. But then when I learned about my aunt, like I had a face to the issue. I was horrified that my grandfather had wanted her killed. But my grandmother had kept this secret, this family secret, this difficult family story and didn't tell anybody about it until after my grandfather died. You know, she was probably afraid of being beaten if she told anybody. And I you know, wonder maybe my aunt and, and my cousin would have had different values if they had grown up hearing this story.
0: Before we move on and I ask you more about your birth mother, I'm curious what your thoughts are on why do people stay with their abusers? Your, mo- your grandmother, I mean, this must have been going on for years. I can't imagine her being happy. Why do they stay?
1: You know, she came from. They both came from an area called Galicia. They called it Galicia in Yiddish. And for her, she was in the north of Austria, what became Austria. And for him, it was the south of Poland. For both of them, like their family was all wiped out in the Holocaust. Like their parents and a bunch of siblings. She came to the U.S. before the Holocaust. Um but my grandfather well she came like kinda early and he came after World War One, I, I think. He was able to get out. Um I you know, I I think that they both suffered so much loss. I think she maybe she felt isolated, didn't have family to go to.
0: Okay. How did it come about? For you to meet your birth mother and what did you learn about her because I read a little bit on your website and I understand there were a few times she almost had an abortion so could you lead us up to what were the circumstances for you to meet your birth mother and what her story was behind your birth
1: let me back up to that last question. You know, the other thing I realized my my grandmother had two younger siblings, a brother and a sister, and her sister, um, I I you know grew up with her, and she had a um, a daughter, and and anyhow, but her she was she was a single mom. She didn't she didn't have a husband, and I can't remember if she got divorced or if she became pregnant out of wedlock but she never had a husband around and i think too that maybe like my my grandmother saw how difficult life had been for her and you know back then it was like that was the only person that i knew that had been you know a single mom i think back then it you know it was much more difficult than it is today
0: that's understandable
1: Okay. So, all right. About my, you know, near-death experience. My (laughs) birth mother told me that she went to two illegal abortions and I was almost aborted. She was pro-choice when we met, told me it should have been her right. And I said, even if you had to do it all over again, I said, you don't mean if you, if you had to do it all over again, she said, no. And she's like, it should have been my right. You don't know what it was like. And, and I know that that's true. I don't know what it was like, but I know that she's okay. Like life went on for her. She had a wonderful husband, beautiful home. Like she's okay. That was a temporary situation. You're talking about like my whole life. Um, it was devastating to hear her say that, like, especially after everything she wrote in that letter. mean, it was so beautiful. I felt totally affirmed. And then she ends up telling me that I should be dead. (laughs) Well, why did she
0: not go through with it? I think if I remember correctly, at least one of those places, it was very dirty.
1: Yeah, that was the first place. It was an OBGYN's office. She had to go through the back door. And like many legal abortion clinics today, it was filthy, terrible conditions. Um, We had 17 of these so-called House of Horrors shut down in Michigan by um, Attorney General Bill Schuette. Only like a matter of, I don't know, eight years ago or 10 years ago, like you know, in modern times, right, you know, legal abortion clinics were filthy. Um, You heard about Gosnell probably just Mm -hmm. again, it's horrible. I mean, you have to think the the kind of people who become abortion doctors, not exactly the most moral people, you know, to decide that you want to kill babies for a living. Um, A lot of people in medical school, a a lot of people who are friends of mine who are doctors said that, yeah, the people who went on to become abortionists Um, you know, we're not great students, (laughs) you know, they might not have been able to get a job doing anything else, Um, just not good moral people. Uh, anyhow, so she said that those conditions and the fact that it was illegal caused her to back out and then it was arranged for her to meet someone at night by the Detroit Institute of Arts next to Rodin's, the replica of Rodin's famous thinker statue, which is actually from a greater work of art called the gates of hell based upon a passage in Dante's Inferno where it warns, you know, all who enter here, like there's no going back and um, very, very, very interesting, but someone would approach her, say her name, blindfold her, put her in the back seat of a car, take her somewhere to abort me blindfold her again, and drop her back off. She was told if she was further along than thought, Um, or if there were any complications, they would have to keep her overnight. And she was terrified for her safety. And so she spoke with this abortion doctor on the phone the night she was to abort me. There was a snowstorm going on. She said my aunt was gonna drive her and he called her stupid. And then he ended up swearing at her, calling her all kinds of names. And she finally hung up the phone. And then he called her back the next day to try to once again, talk her into allowing him to take my life for $750. She told me the first abortionist we're both interviewed recently. Yeah. She said the first abortionist was $500 back in early 1969. And the second abortionist was $750. So I know like The time, place, manner, like how much money was on my head, you know, all these details of my impending death. And, you know, for some people, their near-death experience is waking up out of a coma to find out that they were almost killed in an automobile accident. For me, this is my life-changing near-death experience. And the fact that I was younger doesn't make it any less real or any less significant. And I wasn't lucky. I was Protected. I literally owe my birth to the 1931 law in Michigan, which protected me, and the original 1846 law, which was still on the books, still on the books right now.
0: You mentioned that you and your birth mother were interviewed recently? Yeah, for The New Yorker. Well, what kind of relationship do you have with her?
1: Well, she and her husband legally adopted me. Um Like, I don't know, 15 years ago, my adoptive family, as I said, was abusive and I needed to make sure there was no way my dad and his mistress could raise my children if anything happened to us. So yeah. And she changed her mind about abortion six years after we met.
0: Was that because of you?
1: No, actually. So interestingly, you know, I told you the story about my grandmother who grieved over the loss of her first great grandchild. And then my um, birth mother, when, when we met, she sent me a bunch of photos. And a couple of the photos were five generation photos. Three times in a row, they had five generations of women alive. And this meant something to her. This was very meaningful to her to have these five-generation photos. And um, she sent me all three of those when we first met. There was a picture of her in a baby out, you know, with her great-great-grandmother. Well, um, my niece became pregnant in in a teen pregnancy with my birth mother's first great-grandchild. My birth mother's mom, my biological grandmother, was still alive. And so this meant that they were going to have another five-generation photo. The fourth time in a row that they'd have five generations of women alive. And I got to go down to Florida, meet my sister, and I was in that photo. Do you have a relationship
0: then at all with your adoptive family? No. That includes your brother yeah. as
1: well, right? Right. He spent most of his adult life in prison. Oh, um, Rebecca, you have quite a story. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, I don't know. He had pornographic tattoos that he wouldn't cover up around my children. So it was like, I mean, I went and visited him in prison, like you know we're supposed to as Christians, right? But it, you know, and and when he got out of prison, he was the poorest person I knew. I had him stay with us. Um, I didn't have children in the household yet but then you know he brought pornography into my home like violated boundaries and and then as years went on he wouldn't cover you know the tattoos and so that there was a falling out there and then with my adoptive father once he had a mistress he was taking my kids to see her behind our back and having them lie about it so we sort of did supervised visits and he promised no more mistress. And then he took my son and they took him to a rally, a political rally. I was inside and I came out and they were out there. My dad, my son comes running up to me, I'm like, What are you doing here? This is a terrible environment, you know, it's very hostile. And my dad said, Oh, we were having him hold our signs. And I'm like, We? And then I see her, because I had seen her for the first time two weeks before I was at the zoo with my family. And he was there with her and her teenage son. And I'm like, you know, dad, most grandparents go to the zoo with their grandchildren. <laughs> um. Anyhow, and she she threatened me, because I was like, you brought my son here with your mistress? And she started threatening me getting in my face. And I just like, i like, I can't do this anymore. I just, I can't live like this. My dad had my mom all drugged up on bipolar meds um, in an assisted living facility. So she couldn't even talk because she was agitated. She wanted to go home. So they increased her medication and he visited her every day. I did court appointed work as a guardian ad Lightum and adult guardianships. And I know what it's like. And, you know, the doctors are doing what he wanted and he's there all the time, charming them. So it's like, what am I going to do you know I got five kids at home like I'm going to try to contest this and become her guardian like I mean he already was her guardian right to have her kept there so I just like I, I you know she couldn't talk I mean I went to see her on Mother's Day last time I saw her and um he stepped back into this kind of party room and it was like, I just felt like demonic. He was like, you know, I just shuddered and I'm like, I can't do this. This is like traumatizing. So um, I approached my birth mother and her husband to ask if they would adopt me. This is
0: a lot of baggage for you. And it's not, A successful adoption story. Hopefully we can talk about that a little bit later on because that is part of pro-life. If you need to adopt, if a baby needs to be adopted to another family, we want to make sure that that's successful as much as we can.
1: And they, you know, they didn't do like background checks back then, but it's not like my parents had a criminal background or anything, but, you know, my adoption story was like many where they said, oh, we tried and tried for years and years and couldn't get pregnant. So then we decided to adopt. And I really felt like I was second best last resort. Like you wouldn't have wanted me if you didn't have to. And um, in fact, when I went to adopt, you know, early, I was married a year when, when, you know, we adopted our first child and, and second child. Um, and I remember like lots of people saying, why, like, why, why give it some time? Like, again, why would you want to, if you don't have to like people thinking adoptions only if you have to like, man, that I I had a transformation where, you know, I became a Christian. And I went to a seminar on seven core issues in adoption for all three members of the triad, how it affects them. And it was a secular presentation, Um, but they all have spiritual answers, you know, issues of mastery, identity, control, loss, like all these big issues, like your connection to eternity. These are all spiritual issues. And so I kind of experienced like healing through that and and learning scripture that it's in the spirit of adoption. We're called to be God's children through Christ, like not second, best, last resort, but, you know, God's first choice meant for the body of Christ, a picture of his love for us. And, um, you know. Uh, though my mother and father forsake me the lord will receive me and a father to the fatherless is god in his holy dwelling god sets the lonely in families and religion that god our father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after the widows and orphans in their distress and there's that story in um, ezekiel chapter 16 and it's it's an allegory for you know god's love for Israel but it starts out saying your mother was a Hittite, your father an Amorite, which makes it sound like you either you were a half-breed or maybe they were warring nations. Maybe this was rape because it, then it goes on to say, and for on the day you were born, you were despised. And it said, um, there you were lying um, in your own blood with your cords still attached which meant that baby was bled to death. And um, no one looked on you with pity or cared for you, you know, just left there by the side of the road, road in a field. And, and he says, and I saw you and I said, live, you know, and it says, I brought you in, I cleaned you off and, you know, cared for you. So it was like, wow. I mean, you know, sometimes people like a secular worldview is life is what you make of it no big deal just get over it right and they kind of glaze over bad things that have happened to you you know just carve your own life life's what you make of it no big deal like forget the past you know and um the bible doesn't do that like it acknowledges like though my mother and father forsake me the world like it acknowledges that there are some children who are completely and utterly forsaken by their biological parents you know it doesn't gloss over that it doesn't gloss over like children who are abused or anything like that it acknowledges that but then demonstrates how they're a priority to God and you know where um now I felt like an outsider being raised Jewish. I was called a bastard. My my classmates in Hebrew school would tell me, you're not really one of us. So I knew like I wasn't one of God's chosen people. And like, I didn't know why I fit into this world. But now like I learned the story of Ruth, which is from the Old Testament, where she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And now I can like embrace Judaism and as being, um, you know, being grateful for that upbringing, it's kind of brought everything full circle and we're told that we're grafted in to that family tree, like doing family trees is already always so painful, but we're grafted in through Christ, again, in the spirit of adoption. What
0: was your journey to becoming an attorney and when did marriage come into play there and starting your family? What came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs>
1: Um, I wanted to be an attorney since I was about 10 years old and why yeah, I had my own law practice well my dad used to always say to me um, whenever he would try to punish me or make me do chores and you know I felt he's being unreasonable um, I would always try to talk him through it and, and ration, you know, rationalize with him and he'd he'd always say, Oh, you're good. You're good. You know, you should be a lawyer. then I asked him like, what's a lawyer. He went to law school three times and dropped out ended up becoming a professor. But he would talk to me about like, he told me, for example, he learned in law school, like if you have a law that says a dog needs to be on a leash, well, how long does that leash have to be, you know? five feet 25 feet what if it's a block long or a mile long right and he said that you know lawyers argue like what's reasonable and I thought oh that's kind of cool and then he took me to see the movie The Verdict with Paul Newman and there was a victim in that film and you know Paul Newman was a flawed character in that but he ends up being like a hero this victim and I thought that's what I want to do I want to be a hero I mean I grew up learning about all these injustices um you know especially like how the Nazis killed all these Jews and like how could nobody stand up for the innocent people and but when I was in high school in my Jewish community the women would say oh what do you want to be when you grow up and I'd say you know I want to be a lawyer and they'd say oh like a feminist (laughs) <laughs> and I'd ask them well what's a feminist they'd say oh it's like when you um women who fight for women's rights make women strong and fight for women and I thought well you know I'm strong like I was an athlete lifting weights you know from a young age and like I was really powerful like yeah
0: sure like a feminist feminist is different so- today isn't it
1: Oh, I mean, even then I started hearing right away that feminists support abortion. And I thought, what on earth does killing babies have to do with being a strong woman? I mean, that's being a bully. You know, you're preying on someone weaker. That's how is that a feminist? Like you're turning into, you know, a predator. Why? Why would you do that? And. I mean, I understand now that abortion is very exploitative of women and um, they prey on women's fears. And so, you know, when you think about it, like feminism, I always would hear like, I am woman, hear me roar. And this whole idea of like, I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan. Right. That was like that Anjali commercial, like that I can have it all. I can. I remember it, that. And yep. I don't even have kids, and, But the abortion culture says, no, you can't and tells, tells women that you have to be afraid of a baby. Like, how, how is that encouraging women to be strong, to suggest that you need to be afraid of a baby and to suggest that you can't have it all, that you have to choose between your education or a baby or a career and a baby. That's not being a feminist, that's, enabling women to be weaker. That's engaging in self-defeating behavior.
0: Did you get married while you were in law school or where did that come
1: into play? No, I was abused when I was in law school. I ended up in an abusive relationship and I I lost my front tooth eventually. Oh my gosh, Rebecca. Yeah. A guy I went to law school with. And that's when God called me back to him. I first came to um, accept Christ when I was 15 and then fell away after a year and then made some of the worst decisions in my life. And then in law school, at like 22 is when I, 21, when I came back to Christ.
0: How long did you stay with the abuser?
1: And I was in that relationship for about a year and a half until he broke my jaw and I, and my front tooth was hanging.
0: And that's what made you decide yeah. this isn't right. This isn't where I'm supposed to be.
1: Every time I would try to leave, like he would threaten me, terrorize me, harass, you know, call everybody my phone book, like and, and and I education was very important to me, so I went to law school with him. Like I didn't know how to get out and to be able to finish school and help me rack up all kinds of debt, and I felt trapped. What is your law
0: degree specifically focused on?
1: Um. Well, I went to. I ended up taking a family law class that summer because of my own experience with domestic violence and learned, you know, the cycles of abuse and how you, why you end up staying and like the frog in the pot. Yeah. So that's part of my journey, but that's how, you know, Christ called me back to him out of that terrible situation. And, you know, it's like, I tell people like, okay, I had my smile restored as part of the give back a smile program for victims of domestic violence. And it was essentially like $20,000 worth of of dental work. So he did not just three teeth with the bridge and the fourth to match, but he did eight teeth with porcelain veneers. And um, yeah, I tell people like, I'm really grateful for this nice new set of teeth, but that does not make me pro-domestic violence. <laughs> Just like being thankful for my life does not make me pro-rape, which is what people will say from time to time because I put myself out there so I get attacked. People will call me a rape apologist, say I'm promoting rape, that if I cared about my birth mother at all, I would have killed myself a long time ago. I mean, you know, we get called, I get called rape trophy, horrible reminder, rapist child, never rape victim child, always rapist child. Um. Yeah. So anyhow, but, you know, I, this is like another situation of what man meant for evil. You know, God can use it for good. He trades beauty for ashes, and he could create something beautiful after something horrible.
0: After growing up in an abusive home and subjecting yourself or not subjecting yourself, but being around someone who you thought loved you and you loved him. What lessons did these horrific circumstances teach you because hopefully out of all of it you learned something about yourself or learned something that would help you grow
1: yeah i mean part of it you know i got into a couple of bad relationships that was like the second one um and it was like just wanting to get out of a chaotic household you know and for me when i finally Um, started my own law practice. I mean, I I ended up in working for a guy for Peanuts. He hardly paid me anything. Eight months, because I wanted to be a family law attorney, and I knew in this firm I'd be able to do family law. It was just me and my boss. And I took a court-appointed criminal case. It was my very first case. It was court-appointed. So, you know, it's not like he gave me this case. Like, I got it from the court. And my client was horrified to hear that he had beaten a five year old child when he was like high um, on some drugs. And he, he didn't want to do what's called a preliminary examination. And so he wanted to waive the preliminary exam because he didn't want to put the little girl all bruised up and her mom all bruised up on the stand. And um, he was just horrified and he just kind of wanted to plead this and get this all over with and, you know, get help. And um, I came back and my boss asked me like, so what happened? I said, you know, he waived the preliminary exam and he swore at me and he said, who the F gave you permission to waive the preliminary exam? You needed that experience, you know, and, and, um and he was swearing at me up and down, just chastising me. And I stood up to him and I told him, you know, I just felt like the strength after I'd already been through hell. And I've said no more. I wouldn't, I was a Christian now. And, you know, we, there was that, you know, verse that um the Lord is my, like my salvation of whom shall i be afraid right like i'm not going to be afraid of man anymore like the scripture talks about like you know being afraid of man or being you know having like the fear of god and like standing for what's right so like i yeah i'm never going to be afraid of man ever again right never again and so like i had that strength and um had god on my side and i stood up to him and said you know I won't be in a relationship where someone speaks to me that way. You will not talk to me like that ever again, you know, and just burn. And he like was shocked and back down and he never swore at me again until I gave him my two weeks notice. <laughs> so then it started. And then it's like, okay, I just wrapped up the cases I had and I got out. I started my own law firm and I, um, quickly you know within a year and a half like bought myself a condo and for me like that was really significant that um you know I wasn't going to wait for a man like I with all of those hurts you know I jumped into relationships because I sort of wanted to make up for everything that happened to me in my life and I was going to start my own family and I was going to do things right and do things differently and um and instead of, um, you know, being dependent on a man like that, I was like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna carve my own future. You know, and if some, whatever happens, happens, but I'm not gonna wait for, and I'm not gonna be desperate and jump into relationships like that. And yeah, that was, you know, that was my healing. I, I, I felt strong doing that for myself.
0: How old were you when you married?
1: 28, 29?
0: It was so long ago, you can't remember.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. We're about the same age, Rebecca, so I feel okay saying that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm 53.
0: I'm 52, um, I'll be 53 on my birthday. Yay.
1: <laughs> so, I um, yeah, I'm I don't know if you saw this, but I'm since divorced. Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: that Pretty much falls into what happens next, though, because you're starting a family and you have these beautiful children.
1: So we adopted three. And, and why did we, you
0: choose adoption?
1: Picture of God's love for us. I knew I wanted to adopt, I felt called to adopt, I went through all that healing. And before I even met him, I I felt called to adopt. So when we did start, you know, courting, um, he, I told him, you know, just, you know, I feel called to adopt. And he's like, I oh, I do too. You know, he had been a big brother in the big brother program. And he said, I knew I could love a child as my own. And so we didn't know we'd have four years of infertility. And we ended up finding a pro fertility doctor and I got pregnant the first month. yeah so we adopted after a year and Caleb his birth mother's 16 and then Cassie she was born six months after Caleb she had a serious genetic disorder and she spent 12 days in children's hospital and 21 days in her home and she passed away at 33 days old in her arms when a cardiologist took her off of oxygen when she wasn't ready to be. And she stopped breathing and then they resuscitated her and they did another procedure and she stopped breathing. They re- By the time they resuscitated her the second time, she had significant brain damage. And then they couldn't keep her blood pressure up any longer. They disconnected everything but the ventilator. And, you know, um, my husband held her, I held her. And, um. I held her, her birth mother held her, and then she died in her father's arms, you know, from one loving father to the next. Um, and that was the most difficult thing I'd ever been through. Um, A year later, we adopted Kyler. Kyler was Caleb's half-brother, same birth mother. And this time, um, I know she drank during her pregnancy early on with Caleb. This time, um, she was 18. And she was doing heroin. Um, We we got him, sorry, when he was a year old. Was he still suffering Um, from the
0: after effects of that? Was that something?
1: I think his whole life, his whole life, you know, he was, you know, diagnosed as ADHD. I did everything, you know, to keep him off of medication. Um, Went the holistic approach. I homeschooled my kids when they were young. Um, But, you know, once he got into school, like he couldn't focus. And he was always like did all kinds of death defying things. Um, He was super active. He was my gross motor kid, you know, lots of sports. He really excelled in sports, incredible, Um, fearless, like skateboarding and did wrestling. And all my kids played soccer. So I ended up having three biological daughters after so I raised five children and um Caleb just super smart he had over 80 words at 10 months old clear as a bell he could say octopus I mean it was he was unbelievably freakishly smart and um big reader you know spoken complete sentences year and a half um, I remember September 11th, I took him to a rally like a week later and um, at the courthouse and he was a year and a half old. He was 18 months old and they were singing patriotic songs. And I played these patriotic songs in the car, including like the um, armed service medley. Right. And here he is, 18 months old, belting out the words, clear as bell, as loud as he could. And people are like, how old is he? <laughs> you know um he had wanted to be in the military from a young age he um he got a 90 on the test to get into the military he was going to go into the navy and then he decided not to because he said he was worried about his brother how far apart
0: were they then just a few years 20
1: months yeah and you know they were um really good kids and they were younger um they both had their own gifts um they were really kind to people at school even when they started you know sort of acting out at home you know all these teachers were saying that they were the nicest kids that they had the best manners that they would always say you know ma'am and sir and please and thank you and that even after they were no longer in this teacher's class you know all the teachers said they would not a day would go by that they wouldn't go by their classroom and say, you know, hello, Mrs. So-and-so. How are you today? And they say, kids just don't do that. And it was like, all the teachers said that. And, and from church, like they all said that. And the parents of their friends all said that, like, how are you Mrs. So-? Like, they're like, kids don't have, you could tell they, you raised them, right? Like kids just don't have manners like that. But um, they started, you know, struggling at home. We had an open adoption. There were some, you know, hurts there where their their birth mother, you know, she was she was high on heroin with Kyler. She his biological father tried to drown him, high on heroin when he was nine weeks old. So we got him at a year old. They finally consented to us adopting him to keep them together. Um, but he was kind of haywire and. The birth mother i just said look you know we had an open adoption and you know if you're not clean or you're high or you know drunk like don't come by well there were times that they she she got clean supposedly but then she would cancel on them and they'd see on facebook that she had a date you know with some guy she just met you know that really hurt and then um it went over there once and she was drunk But the, you know, the uncle and the grandmother wanted to spend time with them. But, you know, that was a mistake. My son told me that it was like one of their uncles that introduced them to um, vaping when they were in middle school. And that was their first, you know, addiction, nicotine. It's it's four times the amount of nicotine as cigarettes.
0: Were you aware uh, of that right
1: away? or did you find out later? No, well, found out later. I didn't know what vaping was. It was kind of new, you know, I, I didn't even know what it was. And then they'd say, Oh, it's just water vapor. And I'm like, this doesn't sound right. And, and then I started learning, okay, you know, this has nicotine. I'm like, you guys like, no, this is bad. And I started reporting things to the schools because it was going on in the school. And, um, you know, didn't give them phones like when all the rest of the kids did. But then later they they got phones and it was just there were, there were things I would do differently. Um, you know, I would wait even longer not to give them phones and I would have continued homeschooling. I would have stopped traveling and stopped speaking. Um, but it was, it was tough because my ex-husband and I obviously we weren't on the same page like at all um, from the time they were very young. You know, I, I would go in the room and find everything. Um, yeah, my son told me in ninth grade, kids brought Percocets and um, oxycodone and, you know, Vicodins and Xanax to school from their parents' unlocked medicine cabinets and um that's when they you know an addiction started and then he got clean and then he fell back into it you know we live in an area where it's one of the it was ranked top 10 cities living in america there's a ton of affluence here um not our household <laughs> but you know um you know a lot of a lot of very wealthy families but um there's problems like we, we have like one of the top five schools in the state, but there's major problems in the school with vaping and pills. Like I didn't know anything about these pills. Like apparently pills are youth's number one drug of choice nowadays. And when they can't get it from parents' medicine cabinets, then they get fake stuff and um you know he told me about the xanax but i didn't know that it was all fake and my birth mother you know i i i I, you know she had been on xanax like i had heard of it like for anxiety but like people don't die from xanax um And I heard about the opioid crisis and I thought, well, it can destroy people's lives. Like they can't function, they can't go to work. Like I'd heard those stories, but I didn't hear about people dying from, you know, taking Percocets. Um, I knew nothing about fentanyl, nothing. Um, And I knew nothing about Narcan, which saves lives. But I knew that they needed help. And so my ex-husband, he headed up Celebrate Recovery at church. Um, so I asked him to take them. We we were divorced at this point. And um, I knew that they needed help.
0: Rebecca, how long had this been going on and how old were they?
1: So Caleb was 20 and Kyler was 18.
0: It had been going on for a while then. You'd been dealing with this.
1: Yeah, they were... You know, they had stolen from us um, a lot. And it caused a lot of strife in the household, you know. Um, So they got into trouble with the law. They were on probation. Um, I had said he needed rehab. It was COVID 2020. They didn't want anybody in jail. So I begged this organization not to bail them out I'm like my boys are getting clean like they both had totally given their heart back to christ like and were so apologetic and kyler wrote out 17 we found these later but he had written 17 point goals for his life you know he wanted to be clean he wanted to graduate from high school which he did online that day um the day before and caleb Wanted to, he told me he wanted to write out his testimony and speak in churches and schools. Um, he wrote like we found it after, but you know we talked about, you know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean they, like, you know they went to Iwana like they knew Scripture they knew Christ like, and um, you know they came like you're my superhero you know you always cared you always went in our room and you you know you tried like Tyler said you know I'm in here with kids who had a terrible childhood abuse drugs parents in prison or jail and he's like I had the best childhood He's like, you raised us right. I have so many good memories. We did all kinds of cool things and went to cool places. You know, I took them all over with me speaking. And we always said we were going on adventures. And, um, you know, he's like, I'm so glad you adopted me. Um, They both you know, said, you're my hero. So, yeah, they're Judge reduced their bond. And so this organization bailed them out. I said he needs rehab. And I didn't know the rehab was just a flop house. It wasn't real rehab. It wasn't medical rehab. And I figured my ex-husband would be able to find them rehab because he had some Celebrate recovery, you know. But then he tells me after that they don't do that. They don't have those resources. And... Um, Anyhow, he said he was gonna take them to a hotel for the night and I said, you have to stay with them. You know, they're not supposed to be alone together. There's a probation, they're not. And um, I knew Caleb was back on drugs. I knew Kyler was, and we were scared, you know? And he's like, well, I'm just gonna put them up out in a hotel for the night. Like you have to stay with them. And, um, yeah, I found out five months later that this girl testified. I, I didn't know when all these other young people arrived, there were five of them in the room and she testified that the room was in her name because she was haggling with him. He paid for the room, but he didn't want it in his name because he knew they were all high and he didn't want this to be This was your liable. ex-husband? Yeah. And he didn't want to be liable for damages. I didn't know that until like five months later. I thought they all arrived late, but and that's why the prosecutors gave the drug dealer a plea deal. So he got eight to 15 years for killing three people.
0: What happened that night?
1: Um, They got fake Percocets. It was 100% fentanyl. There was no Percocet in it at all. And it was actually... um. Yeah, in the middle of the night that this was acquired, they have video footage of the drug dealer going out and coming back to the room with it. This girl left them to die. She never took the Percocets because she passed out from other stuff before they ever got it. And there was video footage of my boys helping her down the hall. Her boyfriend wasn't helping her. Like it was my boys, you know, helping her walk. But then when she woke up the next day, she called a friend of hers because she saw them all dead. Um, her boyfriend was passed out. He was revived. The drug dealer was revived with Narcan. But um, she didn't, She was freaking out, called her friend, didn't know what to do. So she didn't call the police all day. And then um, the girl's parents found her, their daughter. She was missing. I didn't know this girl she was 17 and um they were able to trace her phone and so called the police and the police were going to do a wellness check and then I guess my ex-husband was called around 5 p.m and then he called me like 9 p.m to tell me Uh, they were pulled gone it's just it's a nightmare
0: how do you even begin to deal with that
1: You know, Caleb had been like crying to me like uh, 10 days before just saying, "Um, please just don't abandon me. Please just don't abandon me. I feel like it's hard. I feel like I did.
0: You still feel like that today?
1: There's so many things I would have done differently.
0: Oh, Rebecca, that's such a heavy burden to carry. When, you know, it's like hindsight is always 20-20. How could you have known And as a mom, you do the very best that you can. Yeah.
1: Even my baby girl, when that doctor didn't do the testing he was supposed to do before taking her off oxygen, because he was in a hurry. Like I knew he was in a hurry, but I was like excited that she was coming off oxygen. And I asked him, aren't you supposed to do this breathing test? And he's like, oh, she's, she's fine. Just, you know, when you put her down at night, put her back on oxygen, just when she's in your care. And I trusted him. I just, but like red flags were going off. It's like, even then it's like I would have done something differently. I would have said, insisted, no, do, do the testing. And maybe they would have seen that she wasn't ready. You know, so
0: are you, you're carrying the guilt of these three kids with you today.
1: I just, I just know I would have done some things differently. And so all I can do is like, you know, go to God and, ask him to forgive me, ask my children to forgive me.
0: Oh my goodness. I, I just, this is as a mother, I understand that mother's guilt for different things, but I cannot even fathom that you feel the responsibility.
1: I should have taken them to medical rehab. I should have looked it up myself, you know, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand they were doing anything that could kill them. I didn't know what fentanyl was. I didn't know.
0: What could you have done? What could you have done different? I mean.
1: I don't know, but I just don't know by saying that to people. I'm sure there's moms who would hear this who are like, what's fentanyl? What's their You need to know. So the year my boys were born, I'm sorry, the year Caleb was born, 2020, there were roughly 20,000 drug-related deaths in the U.S., 20,000. The year they died, 2020, there were over 100,000. What is fentanyl?
0: Can you tell us what is fentanyl and where is it coming from?
1: It's a synthetic opioid. It's coming from China. There's people in the support groups I'm in where their kids, it was shipped straight from China. They got a package. They could see the package from China. Um, And, but mostly it's coming over the border through Mexico. The cartels are selling it. And um, it's estimated there's enough fentanyl in this country to kill every citizen many times over. Um, It's not just in pills. They have these presses too. So you can't even tell the difference between a real Percocet and a fake Percocet presses that come from China, these pill presses. And um, they're also putting it in Skittles and Nerds and, you know, different candies. They're not trying to create addicts. They're trying to kill off our population, to kill off our children. It's mostly young people, young males, who are dying they don't have to go to war you know imagine if we had like a a war with china where we're you know it's with guns and bombs and there's a hundred thousand young men dying every year and young people are men and women but it's mostly men you know Our our country would be like, okay, enough with the war. Like it's not worth losing over 100,000 every year, right? We'd put an end to this war. But it's not happening now. You know, we have open borders along Mexico and it's just flooding into this nation. And every day there's more photos, more faces added to these support groups that I'm in of thousands of parents, thousands upon thousands of parents who have lost their kids. And every day there's new faces added.
0: You know- Why is this not getting the attention?
1: Because I don't know, people think, well, they're drug addicts. (laughs) I mean, I couldn't believe like, I, I was waiting for like the results from the autopsies. And a lot of parents, like in these groups, they'll talk about these kinds of things, navigating navigating the judicial system. Like there was a, you know, their drug dealer was arrested. And as I said, he ended up being given a plea deal, but it's like, you know, parents are talking to each other about what the, you know, trying to understand, oh, I just got the autopsy report, the toxicology says this, what does this mean? And, you know, asking all these questions. I mean, this is all new for us, right? Well, I knew that lots of parents, like their cause of death for their kids said fentanyl poisoning or fentanyl toxicity. For my sons, instead, it said cause of death, drug abuse. And I thought that's, that's not right. And I I went online and all these other parents were like, that's insane. You know, that's, that's not a scientific finding fentanyl toxicity that's a scientific finding drug abuse is a judgment call like you know what I mean and and so I called we we live in a huge county and I called the head medical examiner Dragovich and he mocked me he he's like oh you don't like it what, what are you gonna do about it you know and then he's like Like, you want me to sugarcoat it for you? He said that to me. And he's like, if your boys hadn't been doing drugs, they would have died. Well, you know what? People didn't die from this 20 years ago. You know, when we were growing up, we knew kids who did drugs, right? They weren't dying. Now it's like, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Meth, cocaine, you know, even Marijuana. It's in, it's being put in all kinds of stuff. All the kids who aren't old enough, like Michigan, they as marijuana, but there's kids who are getting it illegally and guess what? Fentanyl's in it. So, you know, a, a fentanyl is used in um, surgeries. Okay, but you have a um, anesthesiologist there. You have a doctor there monitoring in a hospital. Without it, your lungs fail; you can't breathe. And um, this is not a drug that you know you can legalize. And um, you know, there's all these people who are for like, you know, they're they're pro-choice when it comes to drugs, right? You know, my body, my choice, or the drug addict's body, their choice. Oh, well, that was their choice. Like, it's not their choice. They're being poisoned. They don't, my boy's drug of choice doesn't kill people, you know? And my son said that he never did, like, heroin and and other things. He said, because I know those things can kill. He thought he was safe taking pills. He didn't want to die. He thought he was safe. Like people don't understand that, you know, and there's like, they're legalizing drugs in all these different states like Oregon and, you know, and, oh, it's going to be, you know, safer. You can moderate. You can't monitor fentanyl. What, you, what are you going to have? You're going to put everybody on anesthesia. You're, you're I mean, you're going to have an anesthesiologist there for everybody so they can all do fentanyl. No, that's not what's happening. Like they're murdering our children. They're murdering our population. You
0: have two things that you are very passionate about and need attention more so than either one of them are getting. So
1: how do you tackle that? Well, I will say I was deteriorating rapidly. Um, You know, you have to look after mind, body and spirit. And I um, spiritually, I was in the right place. Like I would say, like, I have the foundation of faith that I needed, um, and I had all kinds of dreams that I feel God sent me, you know, Um, but my mind and my body were deteriorating. So I was in grief share. I was in Christian counseling. I was listening to the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn because, you know, I wanted to know like when I would send my kids to somebody's house I would always go over there I would go inside meet the parents and you know see what it looks like and I'd ask is there porn do you have Do they have access to the internet without supervision like is there alcohol are there guns in the home like things I want to know right and um I'd always want to know where they are what it looks like what it's like and like I want to know what what heaven's really like so I did this like Randy Alcorn book it's supposed to be like you know probably the most academic book on heaven not based upon what other people think it's like but you know what does scripture say right and that was you know helpful but you know the more I sort of studied all that and and went to grief share it was like in in my face too much and um scripture says that um do not give full vent to your anger right and i felt like i really couldn't give full vent to my grief because when i did i would go dark and it would be like days to recover and i started having stress tremors and panic attacks and so a couple months out like i wasn't going to make it um and my girls didn't want to deal with it you know rolling their eyes at me or my oldest she's like mom why don't you cry in your room alone like i do
0: and that's the last thing you want to hear is that your daughter's in her room crying alone, isn't it?
1: Yeah. 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 Or and she was, you know, the oldest so she had more good memories with them but my my youngest was like they're bad they were bad kids. You know, why should I care if, you know. And I mean, wow. So that was like that was rough. Like I at home I didn't have like You know, they, they didn't want to see, I mean, they deserve to have a good childhood still, right? They deserve to have a mom who's whole and they did not want to see me just crying all the time. Um, so I had to like figure out how to survive this because um, it's a lot to survive. So um, I started running. I hadn't ran in years because I had bad hips, bad knees and i was in terrible shape cardio wise but um i did 2 minutes at a time at a 10 minute pace i'd do a mile and then in 10 days i was able to run 2 miles straight without stopping and in 3 weeks i was able to run 6 miles and then my knees and hips started hurting so then i started cycling <laughs> And then I decided, um, well, I'm going to do a triathlon and I kind of started to set goals for myself so that I could be a little bit future oriented. Um, It was a lot to just pick myself up and get out of bed, you know? So um, yeah, it's been a long journey. I started eating really clean because my friend who's a, who's a physician told me, look, the treatment for this is Xanax. I'm like. I am not taking Xanax, you know, that's not crossing this threshold, right? That substance is not going in my body. Like that's what got this whole thing started. Like I'm not going on Xanax. And he's like, well, you gotta do something different or you're gonna end up like hospitalized, you know? And so I had to like really sort of pull myself up um, by the bootstrap, so to speak, and just start looking after my, my mind and my body. Because those were deteriorating.
0: Um,
1: I've seen you
0: on your website that you have spoken to many news outlets. You're in many different places. What are you speaking about? Are you speaking about abortion and fentanyl? How are you
1: bringing those two together? Okay, so you know, obviously that was COVID, so all of my speaking had been canceled, and um, which was devastating, having just gone through a divorce and. You know, all my speaking's canceled. Then I lose my sons, and it was like, you know, everything's and I, it's tough trying to start back up family law again. But um, I ended up, um, I still had some, a couple of speaking events that fall, and I had some virtual, and I had like I don't know one in person, but I didn't feel like ready to get up and talk about my own story and to talk about how my life matters when I lost my sons. So I shared uplifting stories from their childhood lessons from them. And um, my daughter, like the value of her life, my baby Cassie, because most of the babies we had what she had were aborted. Um, She had something called DeGeorge syndrome. And I talked about my boys like great stories great things that they had shared like beautiful insight when they were little like uh, on abortion very very powerful and um, and it brought me joy thinking about that and being able to share those stories um, and I did speak at um like a year and a half ago like a year after they died I spoke at a fentanyl awareness rally it was like national day of overdose awareness which i don't like the term overdose again this is not an overdose you know um
0: it's a it's a pill that you can die just from touching
1: right right and they didn't know it was in there that's not an overdose they thought they thought they were getting percocets and xanax you know they didn't think they were getting fentanyl they didn't think they were taking murder pills. I mean, I don't
0: like that, but that is the perfect way to describe it. Murder pills.
1: They are. They are. And so I've done media interviews. Congressman Mark Green did it. He interviewed me himself last summer for a podcast. And then we were on national television together. And now that the Republicans have control of the House, he is the chair of the um, congressional Committee on um, Homeland Security. And so I'm testifying Tuesday morning on this issue. There's three of us testifying, me, a sheriff who is his community is on the border and an Arizona doctor. So, you know, I, there are people who are like, oh, this going to be a new cause. And I was like, I don't want to remember them for how they died. I want to remember them for how they live. So this is like not the easiest subject matter to be talking about, you know? But, um, you know, I pace myself and as I'm able to, like uh, I'm, you know, moving forward and talking about this because, um, you know, I'm hoping it can help save lives. And again, I see all these faces add in these groups and I can't even go in these groups regularly. It's too much for me. It's just demoralizing to see that there's so many still dying. But if I can, you know, help parents know what to do, if my regret can help motivate them to go get the medical rehab, to get Narcan, to share this story with their kids. I've had a lot of people tell me that their kids got clean because of their story. Their funeral has like hundreds of thousands of views. Um, on YouTube, Caleb and Kyler Keesling. I asked um,
0: Heather about this and I'm wondering what your response will be. Why are we letting so much fentanyl come over the border? Why are we not doing more? Why is the government not doing more? The
1: border is so politicized because, you know, it's about, it's become sort of about race, you know, and, um, and I know the Democrats see this as being their future electorate, right? You know, they're going to get support from, if they look like they're, you know, pro-Mexican, then they think that they're going to get more votes from Hispanics, from the Latino community. And for that reason, they don't want to crack down on the border. I
0: understand that you changed Rick Perry's stance on certain parts of the abortion issue. What was it that you changed for him?
1: Um, So I'm in the Gift of Life film with Governor Mike Huckabee. It's a Citizens United film and mine is one of several stories featured. Um, So I had backstage passes to the premiere in Des Moines, Iowa. It was held in between two presidential debates. So four presidential candidates spoke at Bachman, Santorum, Perry, and Gingrich. I had backstage passes, introduced myself to each, told them I'm in tonight's film, and um, that I'm the national spokeswoman for personhood. And right away, Um, Bachman Santorum said oh I signed the personhood pledge I said yes I know thank you so much it's presidential pledge it was the first time it was ever done it was a no exceptions no compromise pledge it came out two days before and Perry Gingrich had not signed it because they were both avowed to be rape exception candidates Um, I told them you know I gave them my business card conceived in rape targeted for abortion you know subtle And right away, Governor Perry was stunned, you know, he asked, this is your story. And anyhow, so yeah, at the end of the conversation, he told me no more exceptions. And then Newt Gingrich, the next day, he didn't tell me to my face, because I had a discussion with him. Um, But the next day he and Governor Perry both signed the personhood pledge, no exceptions, no compromise. And then Governor Perry went on national television talking about our conversation, how my story pierced his heart, saying he could not look me in the eyes and justify the rape exception any longer. And Newt Gingrich later, he he wrote a book and he attributed that night, the Citizens United film, my story to changing his heart.
0: You kind of already answered my question, but I'll ask you anyway are there any times when abortion should be considered for a woman, whether it be rape or um, a woman's life's in danger? Are there any exceptions?
1: So I don't, I've written extensively on this and in my 43 page essay, I wrote in law school, the right of the unborn child not to be unjustly kind a philosophy of rights approach. I, I wrote on this topic. Okay. There's this concept in the law that you, you learn in law school called the innocent aggressor rule. And it says that if there's a child who has a gun that you know to be loaded and they're aiming it at you, and the only way to defend yourself is to shoot that child. Our law doesn't think what you did was right. So it says that we understand that survival is a basic human instinct and we choose not to punish so we for example self-defense we don't call that an exception to homicide Mm -hmm. right we don't call it an exception no self-defense is a basic human instinct and we just choose not to punish we don't call it an exception now i know that a um you know, every every state that had uh, an abortion ban had the exception, life of the mother exception, right? And they'll say, except in case of the life of the mother. Um, and I understand that that can be manipulated. And if it if we had abortion bans and you see that it's getting manipulated, it can be tweaked. Because what doctors will do is they'll tell people that, um, they'll say, oh, you need to abort because the child has special needs, disabled child. They don't say that, but they'll say, oh, fatal fetal abnormality when the parents refuse they up the ante instead of making it a fatal fetal abnormality they'll make it life of the mother and they'll say well you have to understand if the child dies in utero you could die too which is true if you have a baby dying you know inside of you or has died and you're not doing something about it if you're not monitoring your baby if you're completely engaging in you know total neglect malpractice but that's not the standard of care you know that's not how it's done and so they try to play off their fear and try to make other situations a life of the mother scenario when they're not really um in talking to pro-life OB-GYNs, they tell me that there's really um you know ectopic pregnancy is a scenario and another one would be if you have a septic uterus And the baby's not far enough along. Like if you're at 17 weeks or 19 weeks and there's no way the baby can survive outside the womb, um, both will die. If you have a septic uterus, the baby can't survive. Um, Cancer, they try to say cancer, you can treat the mother. I have a friend blessed by cancer. Look her up on Instagram. Um, You know, we know with cervical cancer too, like the stem cells from the baby actually help the mother, um, those stem cells that are, that are produced during, so I would encourage people, you know, research that, look it up. My friends have been bullied to abort under those circumstances and they find out that the baby is actually helping them. So, you know, do your own research, look it up. And first we need to get abortion banned. I know, you know, life of the mother, I know it can be manipulated, but, you know, start with that and then um, then demonstrate to legislators why it has to be improved upon, why the language needs to be improved. If you don't have life of the mother, you're, you're gonna lose every, legislate, every legislator, you know? And the fact is nobody wants to see women die. I don't wanna see women die. No, no pro-life person does.
0: Unfortunately, at this point, Rebecca's phone died. And with her intense schedule, of moving her mission forward we have been unable to finish the episode but it's so important that everyone hears her story that I decided to go ahead and put it out with what I have available please listen to since this episode Rebecca has testified before the House Committee on Homeland Security it is a powerful testimony against fentanyl and the crimes happening on the southern border and i encourage you to watch her testimony because it is absolutely breathtaking Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit the peopleouramericanstory.com for social media links, patriotic merchandise, and to sign up for the We the People newsletter. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country.